This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Exodus 20, I'm going to read through the commandments, and then we are on number nine. So we're all right here at the end. And, uh, but I'll start at the beginning and come to, we'll focus on number nine today. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And this is the ninth commandment for today. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 16 again. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's pray. God, we approach you today as the God of truth, as we study your word, and we ask that you would speak to us from the scripture today, that you would declare uh, the truth to us, Lord, and that in so doing, we would be aware of our need for you. We pray that we would, in appropriate places, be convicted of sin, and in all places, we pray we would be prompted to see the Savior and pursue the Savior and cherish the Savior, Jesus Christ, today. God, we pray that you would elevate Jesus and his work, and then the message of the gospel, elevate this in our midst and our minds and our hearts and our affections today, and pray that you would really do a profound work in us And empower us, Lord, to respond to all that is in view with this command. And we ask you just to speak clearly. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond with obedience to you. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When we first started this series, each week I kind of told the background, and I realized as we got farther into the uh, commandments, I, I, I sort of ceased doing that. And I realized this is a really good time to remind you about f- slavery and freedom, uh, because this commandment and repentance regarding this commandment and spirit-empowered p- obedience to this commandment uh, has the ability to bring great freedom in one's life. The context of the Ten Commandments is that the people of Israel were captive in Egypt. They were slaves under the rulership of Pharaoh. And God miraculously, powerfully came down and released his people. He, he, he brought plagues on the land of Egypt until Pharaoh ultimately gave up. And he released his people from slavery and brought them out into a place where they could worship him freely, where they could honor him, where they could live lives that would reflect who God is, that they would be people who reflected the truth that they had been delivered. They had been uh, freed captives by God. And they had been empowered then to obey the Lord and to live in a way that's reflected in these commands, which would announce to others 
that God is a freeing God, that, that, that their lifestyle, their community would be something that would reflect the character of God. So the Ten Commandments are given us with this prologue in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. So the Ten Commandments are about God and his freeing his people, his doing a work of grace, his doing a gospel work, a good news work of freeing slaves and then enabling them to uh, obey him. And that's the same experience that all of us as Christians have as well that Jesus Christ frees us from the power of sin, from the rulership of sin. We're brought out of the kingdom of darkness, slavery, and we're transferred into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of his son, into the kingdom of God himself. And so with that in view, God calls his people in Exodus 20, verse 16, he calls them with this command, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So what I'd like to do is we've had the same sermon outline for every message here. We'll talk about what's forbidden, and actually we've spent a lot of time on that, uh, simply because um, all of us just have a tendency to broad brush and say, I'm not that bad here, I'm okay there, I've got that one managed. We really need God's word applied to our heart to see our need. And then what is required of each commandment, and, and then we want to focus there on how we can honor the Lord by honoring his word. Then we want to talk about how does Christ fulfill this commandment? What does the work of Jesus Christ have to do with this commandment? And then make some application uh, to kind of finalize it. So first of all, what is forbidden in this commandment? Well, if you look at the language, you shall not bear false witness. The, the, what is forbidden is being a false witness. And when you read this, you should think of a trial. Uh, you should think of trial by jury. That, that's what's in your trial by the elders in the case of Israel before the elders. But that is what's in view here, is a trial situation. And that's why the NIV uh, translates this, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Bearing false witness against someone is giving false testimony. It's being dishonest. Uh, with regard to uh, giving testimony about another person. So the specific, in the most specific application, this passage is about perjury. It's about perjury, this verse is. It's lying as a witness when someone is charged with a wrongdoing or perhaps um, there's a dispute that's being settled and, and you have opportunity to give testimony, do not do so falsely. This command is a really, really, really big deal. Because in Israel and, and in, all, you know, in, in all cultures, uh, historically, um, someone's innocence or guilt is determined by the witness of others. And, and it's hard for us to even imagine what this is like because we are so used to Hollywood crime shows, and, and a lot of that's true in terms of the forensics that we see. Um, but we are so used to objective evidence that is marshaled to uh, convict a person and prove their guilt. That's what we're used to. So we're used to DNA evidence that links someone to a crime. There's no DNA evidence in Israel. Uh, th there's no studies. Th there's no, well, we found a hair fiber, and uh, so we, that links you to the murder scene. There's none of that going, there's none of that going on. I just read a book, finished this week, a book that, uh, and part of the book um, discussed a, uh, the crimes of a serial killer in, in the late 1800s. And I was just amazed at how little they had to go on to convict this guy. They, they, had, they had just going around and talking to people and trying to find witnesses. There was zero scientific study or evidence to, to convict this guy. And if you just take that all the way back to this time, testimony is vital because matters were established 
not so much by generic evidence, but by the word of a witness. And that's why God requires that a matter be established by two or three witnesses. Because a single witness, a single dishonest witness, could uh, you know, bring about injustice. So two or three witnesses provide some measure of safety. But even there, the reality is that a person's fate um, could lie within the testimony of an individual. And that's serious because it could mean that an innocent person, I'm sorry, a guilty person goes free, or in this case, bearing false witness against your neighbor, an innocent person is punished or even executed. So that's why this command is really, really sober. And that's why when we look at it, we go, wow, look at what surrounds it. Murder, adultery, theft. Well, it's right there because of the serious nature of giving false testimony against a certain person. Now, certainly the command relates to more than witness stand lying. There's certainly more to it than that. Um, We've seen in each of the previous uh, um, commandments that there is a root behind the the command, the, the sin that's forbidden as well. So in the case of murder, we saw that not only are you not permitted to kill a person unlawfully, but you are also not allowed to be angry with a person. Jesus says that's the root of murder. And you're murderers in your heart if you hate someone, the Bible says. And we saw that with the, with the command on adultery, that not only does that forbid um, unlawful sexual activity, sex with someone you're not married to, but beyond that, it Jesus said it forbids lust, that you can't even lust after another person, for that's the root, that's the heart, that's the foundation, that's the core sin that leads to a physical adultery. And in this case, he starts with what's most serious as well, perjury, lying under oath. He starts there, but the the Scripture would forbid much more than that. For instance, in Leviticus 19, there's a passage where the author is talking about the Ten Commandments and interacting with the Ten Commandments, and this is what we find in Leviticus 19. You shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. So right there in the Old Testament, there's a broadening of lying under oath, a broadening to do not deal falsely with other people. In other words, do not be dishonest. Do not be deceitful in any way. Do not lie to one another. So at the heart of this command are two big ideas we're going to look at this morning. The first one is we may not lie. Do not be deceptive. Do not lie um, in any way. The second one is do not be deceptive, and even more specifically, do not be deceptive in any way that would harm your neighbor. Because the lying here, the bearing false witness, is against your neighbor. And so these verses, um, these commands, the second five commands here have to do with how we relate to our neighbor. You may not kill your neighbor because his life is sacred. You may not commit adultery um, because your neighbor's marriage and yours, but your neighbor's marriage is sacred. You shall not steal for your neighbor's possessions are sacred, and you shall not lie and give a false testimony against your neighbor because his reputation is sacred as well. So we're going to talk generally about lying, which is forbidden, but then also talk a little bit about how could we hinder other people with our lying because that's in view here as well. How do we break this commandment? Well, obviously, uh, by not telling the truth. There's blatant lying, uh, which I think we all understand, that when we say something that is not true, we lie. Or when we fail to communicate something that did happen, we tell a half-truth or something, that's lying as well. But I want to look at some other categories which might be a little bit less obvious but are ways to break this commandment. One would be exaggeration, which is a euphemism for lying. That's Christian lying is exaggeration right? It's it's an evangelical way to lie, is to give exaggerations. See, sometimes in our heart, pride, um, pride tempts us just to stretch it to make ourselves look better, doesn't it? And so we can deceive others through our exaggerations. So Monday you go to work, 
you communicate with the guys that you are um, on the team project with, and you tell them, man, I worked all weekend on the project. The, re- the reality is that you've been honoring the fourth commandment and not working on Sunday, so you didn't work at all on Sunday, and you worked three or four hours on Saturday, but you had to miss something important to you, and it felt like all weekend. But in effort to appear committed to the team, committed to the work, committed to the project, a hard worker, a guy to be trusted and counted on, there's an exaggeration. I worked all weekend on it. We can stretch the truth and exaggerate to manipulate people. Someone comes to you and says, man, what you did, everybody is so mad about it. The reality is that one or two people kind of missed it, mentioned it in passing, but you're so mad about it. And so you can marshal that exaggerated reality. Everybody is mad about this and go to the person because you're mad at them and you want to get their attention and you want them to respond in such a way. We can exaggerate so as to impress others. As a pastor, the question I despise more than any other and get asked all the time is how many people are in your church? How big is your church? Happens all the time. Unbelievers ask me that question. I mean, I'll invite someone. I try to invite people to church. I'll invite someone to church and nine times out of ten, before I get asked, what do you guys teach? What is your doctrine? I guess asked, how big is your church? To which I respond, how stupid is your question? Because that tells you nothing about our church. That was a little rude. I don't say that. I don't say that. But, and it's valid. I mean, they might not want to come if it's three people. If it's my wife and, you know, my four kids they may not want, so I get that. I mean, it's a fair enough question. Or they might not want to come if there's 10,000 people and they couldn't meet anybody. So there's, that's a question that's worth asking. But the, I get asked that by people that, and I, 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 just all the time. Whenever I talk about our church with another Christian, another person, what size is the church? And what I've found over the years on this one is the temptation in my heart, and indeed sometimes more than a temptation, but the lie to... I wouldn't even call it exaggerating, to round, but always to round up. And to round up to the nearest hundred is just just easy. So, you know, if there's 360, an honest answer would be about 350 instead of around 400 because we round up to the nearest hundred. For a while, I was convicted about this, and so for a while, I intentionally told less. So if the number was 360 and someone asked me, I'd say low 300s. And then I realized, well, that's lying too. I mean, what, what's, what's up with that? I mean, that's just try. You don't mortify the flesh by sinning in the other direction. So rather than being proud and lying this way, I'll lie over. So now I, I just try to give the most accurate number I can and smile But the temptation is that God's at work and the work of God is more fruitful when it's evidenced by more people. And I think the work of God is more fruitful when its members are truthful, especially its leaders. I I think a godly church is where people act like God who is the truth rather than act like Satan who is the father of lies. I, I think that's a more godly truth, whether it is. 12 people in a living room or 12,000 people in an auditorium, the question of what is a successful church, it, it, has, it has not to do with numbers. It has to do with things like truth about the Scripture, the, the message. I so often want to be asked, what are you teaching about in your church? That's the question. What are the people like? Well, let me start by representing them by lying about how many of them are there exaggeration. We often exaggerate in conflict, don't we, right? In marital conflict, if you're married, you never stay within the budget. You are never romantic. You complain about everything. No matter what I do, it is always wrong. No matter what I do, How about this one? You always exaggerate. 
<clears throat> Just a little joke because this is uncomfortable material. <laughs> See, categorical statements in an argument, they're not debating tactics to make a point. They're lies. I mean, really, no matter what I do is wrong, that's the tr- accurate, really? You've never once lived within a budget? There's never been a romantic moment in our entire marriage? Are you serious? But what we do is out of self-interest to make our point, and what is this? That is literal bearing false witness about your neighbor. To make our point and to make our neighbor, in that case, our, our spouse, uh, uh, we bear false witness about him or her to make our point. We exaggerate. We inflate. We stretch. We overstate. Obviously, there's a place to use hyperbole to make a point at some point. But what I just talked about is not hyperbole to make a point. It's, it's lying and anger is what it is. Exaggeration. Unfaithfulness is a way that we break this commandment of lying. Again, I was saying in Leviticus 19, it doesn't just talk about false witness. It says, do not deal deceitfully with others. Do not lie to one another. Unfulfilled promises. This is a challenging one if you're a parent in the room. Dad, I thought you said we were going to go swimming today. It's 10 o'clock at night and we didn't go swimming today. Well, I just got busy. That may be true. But, But if we make a commitment... And things can change. Maybe midday we need to say, oh, you know what? I had to work late. It's not going to work out. I'm really sorry. Uh, let's shoot for tomorrow. Okay, that's fine. But if we just don't fulfill, things happen. I get that. But if we just make promises, just make statements, just give the impression that we're going to do something, not the impression, the clear statement that we're going to do something, we just don't do it, that's an unfulfilled promise. That's an unfaithfulness in our speech. And it's, it's the exact opposite of God. We sang this morning, great is thy faithfulness. God always fulfills his promises. God always does what he said he will do. But you and I are unfaithful. And it shows up in our speech, and it shows up with broken promises. We do this as parents as well. We make unfulfilled threats, don't we? If you do that again to our little ones, do that again, you're going to get disciplined. Okay, you did that again. Now, I've told you. I'm going to tell you one more time. But I've already told you and made a commitment. But I'm going to tell you one more time because this is an important part of the game. And so I'll get to you in a minute, right? And the game's still going on. Okay, do it now. One, two, three. And the classic, the only time you ever count in half numbers, two and a half is when you're lazy and don't want to get off the sofa to discipline your kid. That's the only time you count in half numbers is that moment in life. The only time I've ever counted to two and a half. One, two and a half, two and three quarters, (laughs) creating all kinds of decimal, I mean, uh, fractions there. And, And so we train our children that we can say things and they don't matter, that we just make comments that aren't fulfilled, whether they're promises of blessing or promises of discipline in that situation. This is so common. This unfulfilled deal, this is so common that we don't even give thought about it. I'll be there at 12 for the lunch meeting, and we show up at 12.15. I understand there's traffic. I understand unusual things happen. Absolutely. You call at 12 and say, I'm held up. I'll be there as soon as I can. Wonderful that happens. But when that's a pattern... When that's regular, guaranteed I'll be late for an appointment this week. Something will happen based on this illustration alone. I know this is going to happen. So if I'm supposed to meet with you this week and I'm late, I'm just going to say I'm sorry right now. But here's what happens. I'm going to be there at 12, and it's really, I don't organize my schedule. I don't plan things. I don't look ahead. I don't say that's a commitment that matters to someone. I do my best, and whenever I get there, I get there which is an expression of my time matters and yours doesn't while you're sitting there waiting on me. I'm important. The world revolves around me. Scheduling revolves around me. I'm going to get a few more things in before the meeting, which is going to make me late because it's all about me. And you can wait there and I'll say I'm sorry. And then when we meet again, I'll say I'm sorry again. I mean, do you have a coworker like this that whenever the meeting is, they're late? Are, Are you that person? 
Stop lying. I think that's the word to us. Just don't lie. Just be there at 12. And when there's exceptions, there's exceptions. I I think the most common Christian lie is this one, and I'm aware of it because I used this line this week. And because of this sermon and because of conviction, I can say I fulfilled this line. But here's the biggest lie. I'll pray for you. Pray for you. I texted that to somebody on Tuesday. And because of this sermon, I've been very convicted in studying this, and I've actually prayed for that person. But that's just an easy thing to say. Well, you know, that's just Christian for I hope it works out for you. No, that's a lie if we don't do it. So that's where I've adopted the practice oftentimes of just saying, can we pray right now? And then if the Lord brings that person to mind later, I'll pray for them later, or I'll put them on a prayer list and do my best, or I'll intend to pray for you, whatever. But, But the church should be a place where people are faithful, where people, where we are growing and doing what we say, where we are reliable. Because here's what's at stake. This is all about trust. The the church is to be a people that are built around trust. And 12 to 12.10, I understand that's not earth-shattering. That's not perjury and saying that someone murdered and they didn't. Okay, I get that. But it's these smaller evidences of does faithfulness matter? Do promises matter? Do my words matter? Do my commitments matter? Do I exaggerate and stretch because I'm motivated by pride or selfishness? Or does truth count? I'm all for arguing for truth uh, in, in, in society. I'm all for taking a stand against postmodernism and, and, and advocating for absolute truth. But if we advocate for absolute truth and really don't care about it in our personal lives, then who cares? Where's the witness? Where's the example? The people who argue and yell and get red in the face about absolute truth, truth doesn't matter to them in real life. And so we come off as those who are just getting lathered up about something. Same is true, and this is where this relates, is with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is where we seek to give an impression of ourselves that is not accurate, where we are deceiving others. Philip Ryken wrote this. He says, what's the truth about you? What lies have you been telling? What are the lies you tell yourself? What are the lies you try to sell to others? The biggest lie is the one we live with every day, the lie we work so hard to maintain. It is the lie that we are on the inside what we pretend to be on the outside. But Jesus said, Woe to you, hypocrites! You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I think right now, this second, because you're all here on time, you're here, and nobody's been exaggerating the past 10 minutes. Um, I think this is the biggest temptation to us. This is the biggest temptation on Sunday morning with regard to honesty and deception is to come in and to realize, wow, uh, uh, everybody looks pretty good around here. Everybody looks pretty happy, pretty together, and I'm a wreck. I mean, the truth is I'm a mess. Everybody else looks like they're great, so I'm going to look like I'm great as well because it would be terrible to be the one guy that brings everything down, right? And they wouldn't understand, and they'd look down on me, and they would judge me. And so we can look around and we can assume that everything's okay. And the minute we give into that, we're dead. Because Jesus Christ didn't come to help out people that have it all together and just tweak a few areas of their lives. So we block ourselves from the gospel. When we say, I have it together, we give the impression we have it together, we don't acknowledge our needs, our weaknesses, our faults. And I'm not saying that We come up and tell all of our greatest sins to everybody we meet. Hi, welcome to Grace Church. Let me tell you the three worst things I did this week. I'm not talking about some kind of foolishness. But I'm talking about with a circle of friends, with our small group, with those who know us, being real and being committed to living in reality. Being committed to being known for who we are. The church is a family, a community that's called to grow together. that's called to put hypocrisy to death and to be real. It's called to be a place in society, a light in the darkness, 
where people are real, where people are understood to be real, where people are accepted, where they are real, that doesn't mean that we endure sin, we don't encourage people to change, we don't bring the scripture to apply to people, but where people can acknowledge honestly their weaknesses, their sins, their failures, their limitations, and we together can run to Jesus Christ to find forgiveness and power to change. But when everybody has, has it together, that's the one place you can be sure the Spirit is not showing up to help people because he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus doesn't come for the well, but he comes for the sick. Jesus doesn't come for the righteous, but he comes for the unrighteous. Jesus comes to those who are struggling, who are weak. Paul said that when I am weak, then I am strong. He knew the power of God. He accessed the power of God. He touched the person of God through the Holy Spirit, not from his strength, not from his having it all together, but from the thorn in the flesh which revealed his weakness. The church is called to be a community of truth, not a community of fakers. We can find that anywhere in the culture. But a community where people are real. And the reality is that a lot of Christians never grow. We never proceed very far at all. Our our Christian growth is stunted because there's a lack of reality. Nobody knows us. We, We, in essence, live a lie. And so because of that, there's no, there's no uh, experiencing the verse, which I just quoted, that, that God gives grace to the humble. There's no humility. There's no acknowledgement of our need for God. And thus, there's no Spirit of God rushing to strengthen us and the Word of God changing us and the people of God gathering around us and helping us and spurring us on and praying for us, like saying they're going to pray for us and then really praying for us and growing together. There's just a mirage, there's just an act, there's just a smile. There's just a come on Sunday morning, smile and act every, like everything's okay, and then go into a week of darkness or a week of sin or a week of struggle and conflict without anyone knowing that we need help. And that, my friends, is slavery. The very context of this passage is that God says, I've brought you out of slavery so that you could experience freedom and that you could be my people. And there's nothing more freeing than being known for who you are. There's nothing more freeing than having a clear conscience because there's not darkness all around, but we're just known for who we are as a people of truth. Humility comes from truth. Life change comes from truth. Putting to death hypocrisy and bringing to life reality. That is freedom. That is freedom. And, and, I, and that's what God calls us to. I don't know that there's any sin that Jesus hammers uh, direct, more directly than the sin of hypocrisy. If you just look at how he interacts with the religious leaders, it's the religious people Jesus comes, out of, comes after. The religious people who are externally polished and are internally of dead men's bones. And so he comes at that strong because it's completely incompatible with relating to God who is the God of truth. And this is why truth matters. This is why truth matters in our speech. This is why truth matters in how we live because we're freed. We've been freed from darkness and brought into light. And now we're to fellowship, to live in light, not to live in darkness, but to live in light. And there's, there's difficulty for sure in the Christian life, but there is a joy and there is a sustaining peace that comes with a clean conscience, which comes with, well, there's, there's no major things here to hide. Obviously, nobody knows everything about a person. But, but the big issues, they're out on the table with someone. They're out on the table before God. They're out on the table in my way I live. Honesty. Honesty with regard to our neighbor as well. We are not to malign our neighbor's reputation. That, that's kind of the second part. So again, other parts of Scripture talk about not lying. We'll look at another one in a minute. But this, this, this one here also has to do with maligning our neighbor's reputation. Avoid speech that misrepresents someone. Avoid speech that misrepresents and thus defames the reputation of someone else. I found this very interesting. I read several places this week. I wasn't expecting this, but I read several places with people who've written on the Ten Commandments. We have some of those books at our 
bookstore out there, so you may have read some too. But I was, I was kind of surprised that a number of the books I read um, talked about the issues of gossip, slander, these kinds of things. And uh, then when I looked down and really thought more deeply about the verse, I thought, well, that makes sense. False witness against one's neighbor, that's, that's a very direct application. Very direct. Scripture forbids us from slandering, from lying about another person's character or conduct. Listen to this verse, Psalm 15. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. That's the heart of this command right here. Who will dwell on your holy hill? Who's welcome before God? Well, ultimately, we, we come in Jesus Christ who fulfills this. We'll get to that in a minute. But, but it's one who speaks truth in his heart and does not slander and does no evil to his neighbor. So speaking truth in our heart means I don't speak slanderously about someone else, about my neighbor. So we're slandering when we knowingly, intentionally, maliciously speak an untruth about someone else. And we have to be careful here because what I want to give myself freedom to do, and you probably know this as well, is to speculate and to evaluate people's motives and this kind of stuff, that can be very slanderous when we're speaking and we don't know. We're just assuming and we're speaking about someone else. G. Campbell Morgan, a, a pastor who wrote on the Ten Commandments, said this, to repeat a story, if it reflects upon the honor and character of any man without the most careful inquiry, is to violate the commandment. So what he's saying is we can't feel free to just sort of casually take a nugget of truth and just embellish it and imagine and explore and speculate and, well, I think you could have done it because of this or whatever. That can be slanderous as well because we are speaking in a way that is through our even introducing categories and ideas to others that damages their name, their reputation. The same can be true with gossip. Gossip is, uh, it can also fall under a category of speech that harms others. Now, not always. It's not always true that someone's harmed, uh, that someone's reputation's harmed by gossip. But usually, because that's what makes it juicy, usually there's not as much temptation to speculate to the good. Let, let's say, okay, here's what happened. Let's imagine every God-glorifying reason for that. That's usually not how it goes. Not usually not how it goes. Gossip is unnecessarily bearing information that is harmful to another. It's speaking about the private affairs of others, loosely, freely, callously, just assuming that there's no danger in me just talking about someone that's not here. And, and this is risky because even if what we're saying is literally accurate, usually it's not the whole story. Life is, life is very complex, and there's always more to the story than just the little bit that I'm going to tell you. Most cases, that's usually it. But we speak, and we assume we know everything. We assume we saw everything. We assume that the report and our analysis and our speculation and our opinion is all true. And, and we just have to be very humble and very careful when we speak about others. Recently, I encountered a report about someone, someone that I know, and, and the report was kind of literally, this is what happened, and then a quick jump to some assessment of why what happened happened. Well, I, I knew this person, as I said, so I talked with this person, and uh, the person told me the same story. In other words, I heard from the person X happened, I received the report X happened, and then a jump to some conclusions about why X happened. And then when I talked to the original person, oh, it was way more complex. This person didn't know anything about what had happened six months before X happened. This person didn't know anything about other people involved in the situation. This person didn't know anything about the motive 
that the person did X with a heart to honor God and to serve others. The person didn't know anything that X had several options and every option, you ever been in this situation? Every option will, will offend somebody. Every option will disappoint somebody. Every option is, is going to potentially tempt someone, and there's going to be some relational fallout, but you got to do something. Ever been in that situation? And so this person didn't say anything about that. So the story was extremely complex, and when I talked to this person and heard what happened, I just thought, that, that all makes sense. And the person's character was questioned inappropriately. I'm obviously trying to be discreet about a situation, so I I hope that makes sense. What I'm trying to say is that we cannot just communicate, talk, send an email, send a text, write, whatever it is, without knowing and just sort of speculating as if there's no danger, no damage, no hindrance to a person whose reputation is sacred. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. I, I want to commend you as a church on this point. Because there have been a number of situations, some of which have even happened in the past few months, that would be fodder for gossip, slander, and division in our church. And um, that, that's just not been the case. And we have, pa- as pastors at various points, have thanked God. We were recently on a planning retreat, and we just thanked God at one point for the unity I, I, in our church. And I, I do want to express that I do believe you're a people that are careful. I'm not raising these points because, whoa, somebody get the fire hose out on the slander that's blazing all over Grace Church. That's just not happening. Um, not that I know about it, could be happening, not, not that we know about it. and usually that stuff doesn't say stay contained. So thank you for your heart to be careful about your speech and seek to honor the Lord. Silence, sometimes somebody gossips, we, don't, we just take it in silently. That can be contributing as well. Well, what is required here? Listen to Ephesians 4, 24 and 25. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, listen, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Paul says, put on the new self, created in the likeness of God, put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. He doesn't just say, stop lying, start telling the truth. This is what he says. You're a new person. You have been freed from slavery if you're a Christian. Jesus Christ, who never lied, never slandered, never gossiped, never flattered, never deceived, never once exaggerated in a sinful, lying sort of a way or anything like that, He never gave insinuations. He never stretched. He never told a white lie or a half-truth. Jesus Christ always told the truth. Jesus Christ said, in fact, not only did he speak the truth, he said that he is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the book of John, he said that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said he embodies truth. Because he is God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, fully truth. The book of Hebrews says God cannot lie. Jesus spoke the truth, lived the truth, walked in reality, walked in honesty, and is the embodied truth. And yet, on trumped up charges by a couple of people that brought false testimony, no less, about him, he was condemned to die. He was crucified, and the Scripture says that when he was crucified, he who knew no sin came to be sin for us. That is, God the Father credited our sins, those who believe credited our sins to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ bore our sins as he died. And God poured out his judgment, his condemnation, his wrath upon his own Son. 
The same God that, com- uh, that condemns this sin is the same God that paid the price for those who sin. And so the innocent one who was fully truth dies for those who are dishonest, dies for those who have lied, dies for those who have covered their tracks, dies for those who live in deception, dies for those who, who live in darkness like you and me. The innocent one dies for the guilty ones. It's amazing. Truth acts as a substitute and dies for liars. And so those who turn from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ, we have all of our sins forgiven. Our sins of lying are forgiven. Our sins of dishonesty, our sins of hypocrisy, our sins of unfulfilled promises, they're forgiven in Jesus Christ. That is the good news. We are separated from Christ, but now we are united with Him because of what He has done. We deserve eternity in hell paying for our sin. But Jesus died in our place. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you are guilty of your sins and will stand before God and will pay for them. But you can turn to Jesus Christ and believe and receive forgiveness. Have your slate wiped clean because of what He's done for you. It's amazing news. It's really amazing. You'll never hear anything more amazing than that. Your sins can be forgiven. And so Paul says, now that you are new, put away the old way of living. Don't live like you used to, but speak the truth with your neighbor. We are members of one another. We're joined together. We are a family. We are a body. He uses that illustration in another place. We are unified together. And we can tell the truth, starting with about ourselves. Because the cross has already told the truth about us. The cross has said that God is holy and that we all are sinful and that God loves sinners and that Jesus Christ gives His life for sinners so that we may enjoy a new life. There is nothing to hide because the cross has already spoken the truth about us and so we can acknowledge the truth about us with, with others who have also found out the truth about themselves so that there is not to be the gasp of I can't believe anybody would ever do or think such a thing. But rather the embrace which says I am made of the same thing. Whether I've done that exact same thing or not, I am made of the exact same thing. I am tempted. We are all subject to the same temptations. So we are all in need of a Savior. We all receive the Savior. We all trust the Savior. And now we can have a community where truth is told. We can have a community where rather than seeking to bear false witness, rather than seeking to malign my neighbor's reputation, rather than seeking to hinder my neighbor's reputation by gossip and slander, whether just out of spite or whether out of elevating myself by lowering someone else, we now can have a whole new way of speech. We can seek to enhance our neighbor's reputation. See, the church is a place where we speak words of encouragement to one another. Even in someone's failures, we come alongside with patience and love, at times with correction, to be sure. But even that is done with a motive of love, a motive of support, a motive not of self-righteousness, but I am in this with you. See, here's the beauty of the church is that we don't speak in a way to defame the reputation of others. We seek in a way to give fame to the reputation of Jesus Christ and His work in others. So when we encourage others about what God is doing in their life, we are elevating with our speech the person of Christ, and we are edifying our neighbor, honoring our neighbor. The Bible talks about honoring others, honoring our neighbor for what God has done in his or her life rather than defaming our neighbor, expressing gratitude to our neighbor. Thank you, speaking truth. Thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for what you have done. A heart filled with gratitude, speaking truth, recognizing God's work in another person, speaking highly of another person, both in their presence, and this is key, in their absence. May the church be a place where when people get together and someone's name comes up, the person that's a little different, 
the small group leader, the new person, the person that sort of has that reputation as, well, you know, may it be the leader, may it be that when that person's name comes up, may conversation turn to Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done and what we can recognize of God at work in that person. So that the gossip in the background is actually encouraging, actually honoring, actually grateful. May we be grateful gossips as if there is such a thing. Encouraging gossips to talking about Jesus Christ behind people's back and His work in them. And let's make sure we communicate to, that, to them as well. But may it be a place where the outsider comes in and says, I, I know them by their love and their love is expressed in their words. It may even be a place where someone had to say something hard to me. Someone had to tell me a hard truth in love. Someone had to correct me. Someone had to adjust me. Someone had to speak a hard truth to me in love. But they did it with a tear in their eye. They did it with a humble heart. They did it as one fellow sinner to another. They came across the table. They sat on the same side with me. And as one sinner to another, they had to speak a hard thing to me. But I've never seen anybody do that who loved me. May people come into the church and say... One thing is very different about those people. It's how they speak. See, my concern is that moralistically they would say, well, they didn't say the five bad words I know. Now, the church, we, we shouldn't say bad words, but the goal of the church is not just to avoid the, the words on the cussing list, and that's why we're a Christian. Wow, that is weak. May the church be the people that are filled with Jesus Christ, that are speaking about his work, that are telling the truth that are telling the truth firstly about themselves, that are walking in reality where people are confessing their own needs and asking for help. People are confessing their sins. People aren't arrogant and proud and exaggerating and and hypocritical and putting up a face. It's just reality. I pray that anybody that would encounter us in a small group situation in particular, they would come in and say, these people are real. Even if they don't like us, may they say, they're real. Those Christians, they're real. They're truthful. I don't like them. I don't believe in their God, but they're truthful. That's a witness for Jesus Christ. And may that be us. You can find people to flatter you. You can find people to slander. You can find people to complain and gossip and be hypocritical. You find that everywhere. But where are you going to find people that live in the truth? It's those who have been saved by the one who is the truth and is building a community of light, a family of truth. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website, gracechurchfrisco.org.